As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. Welcome to Android's Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting normally out of the University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario campus. This is not the university edition of Android's Dungeon. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but uh, school's out, and also no one's allowed in the school, unless you're going in to get your uh, experimental gene therapy shots. So if you're doing that, you can record an episode. If not, don't record an episode. Just leave. Just walk right out. Uh, I am joined today by a uh, friend, dear friend of the Uh-oh. show, and uh, in real life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bump you up there, Michael. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. I realize I'm filling in for Joel, who's away, so I'm kind of like fake Joel. You know what? Fake Joel, Ursat's Joel, uh, you know, it's ad hoc Joel, it's fine. As long as we have somebody who's there to replace, or fill that void that... <laughs> the black I, like ad, I like ad hoc Joel. <laughs> I, I was starting to struggle there for my synonyms, for <laughs> but uh, I made it, I think. Uh, Michael, what have you been up to today? Uh, well, today, you know, it's a business day, so I was at work. Yeah. Was it a good day of work or was it uh, a grind and you just couldn't wait to get out of there? Uh, it, uh, it actually wasn't a bad day. It was the yeah. completion of an irritating two-year-long conversation project that <laughs> got done. Okay. So that was sort of a bittersweet thing. Bitter that it took two years, but lovely that it's done. And then I got to leave and then work from my uh, little front garden patch for the rest of the day, which was lovely. Yeah, it was a beautiful day for it. I don't know what it was like in Toronto, but here in Guelph, it was... Um... I think the computer indicated it's 26 degrees and uh, nice breeze. It was a little steamy at times and when the sun was just hitting you. But overall, I thought, pretty classic summer day. Yeah, no, that's exactly what we had. And you, what were you up to today? I was at the office, office as well. But uh, it, uh, there's really nothing to report except it felt very quiet in there. There was one other person walking around. She is a... She works in the office next to me, and occasionally she she walks out of the office, and I say hi to her, and she's hi to me, and that is that. Is that. <laughs> That's a, a COVID office. Well, I guess so. <laughs> it's yeah. more or less. Uh, Android's Dungeon is a show about games, movies, books, music, whatever happened to us on the way to the studio, or in this case, the way to either the office or your lovely garden where you can get a moment of sanity in a busy urban environment. Michael, what have you been playing recently? And uh, we can tie in the stuff we've played together. So is there anything separate? Yeah, well, I, uh, separate things. It's been a little bit of family games recently. So I've been playing, uh, played a bunch of Coup. Mm-hmm. And then I also played a couple of rounds of Lost Cities. Oh, excellent. So let's start with Lost Cities. Uh, yeah. Were you playing the card game or the board game? I was a good question. I was playing the card game, the two-player card game. Yeah. So describe the, the uh, Lost Cities card game for the listener. The, Lo- the Lost Cities card game is designed by the imminent, eminent, eminent uh, yeah. Rainer Nitzia, 
Nitzia. I pronounced all of those words wrong. Hey, it's all it's all good. We all know who the good hair doctor is. So, <laughs> so anyways, it's uh, designed by him. Uh, and it's essentially, it's a two-player game, and it's you have a deck of cards which are made for the game. They're essentially five suits, numbers one to ten. And uh, the deck gets dealt out between the two players, and then you lay down the cards one at a time and try to create runs in each suit. Mm -hmm. And then you add up all of the cards in, your, in each run, and you want to be greater than the number 20. Mm. Uh, and if you aren't, you get negative points. And so you, uh, or you can choose not to go into a suit at all. The whole, the conceit is that you're exploring different lost cities, Atlantis, the Antarctic, uh, in Egypt. Um, so you can also choose not to get involved in one of the suits mm -hmm. and therefore lose no points nor gain points. Uh, the place where it gets interesting is there's also cards that you have to play at the beginning of your run that either double or triple or quadruple the number of points you get. Um, but then, of course, if you end up with negative points, you double, triple, or quadruple your negative points. So mm -hmm. it's a bit of a gamble you make at the beginning, which uh, makes the game fun and exciting. And it's endlessly frustrating because you only have a hand, so you're drawing cards one at a time. Mm -hmm. So you never quite know whether... Uh, Fortune will favor you and give you the cards you need to make your run. We've played a lot of Lost Cities uh, card game. I know there's a board game, and I have no idea what the board game is like. I wonder if it's just the system expanded to more than two. But we played tons of the card game, and uh, there was there's nothing worse than starting something, throwing down lots of wagers, and you think you've got this in the bag, and you start something, and you just see the smile on your opponent's face. Yeah. <laughs> She's holding on to like the, the 10 card or something like essential yeah. to you. Well, that was it. I, I had played last year with uh, my girlfriend's then 10-year-old, mm -hmm. and he liked it. And so we played again this year. It had been a whole year. And when I kind of reintroduced him to the game, he, the first round, he was terrible, which yeah. was fine. But I was also a little bit like, uh-oh. And then after that first round, he was doubling and tripling runs and getting them and just completely outscoring me. It was, wow. Um, yeah, because at first I was like, oh, no, this will be grim. Yeah. Uh, and then he slaughtered me. So it was grim, but in a slightly different way. <laughs> it's definitely a game that I think is family friendly insofar as that there, there's no direct uh, conflict. It's. Nope. It's it's press your luck. It's e you can travel with it easily. You don't need the board necessarily. You can just you just need the cards, and you don't even really need the cards as much as you could almost like proxy this with a deck of cards if you had the patience and the the wherewithal to do it. But it's it's a neat game, and also the art is. Have you ever noticed, Michael, that when you put the cards out one by one, they they tell a little tale, like the the path goes deeper and deeper with them. I did this time. Yeah, I had the first time, and so I laid them all out. Yeah, it kind of makes a composite zoom-in picture. Yeah, there you go, composite zoom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, uh, it's super simple, so it's it's fast and easy and fun. It's a good one. Basically, everything you want in a, a simple two-player game like that. Too. Yeah. So you mentioned coup as well. Uh, do you mind describing coup? I do not mind describing coup. So coup is, I think, it plays up to six. It plays two to six players. And there's a deck of cards with five different personalities in it. I think it's five. And there's a few of each. I think Joel said three of each. Um, but I, I feel like there's more. Uh, anyways, every player gets two cards. And each personality has a power, either to 
take money, to steal money from another player, to block money being stolen from you, uh, mm. to assassinate another player, or to block being assassinated. Yeah. And then the slightly more complex ambassador card. <laughs> but you, you have two cards, and you play them face down, because uh, you don't really look at them much, and then you take the actions of the personalities of your card, but no one knows what you have. And so you are encouraged to, I like to say, bluff. Again, my girlfriend's son liked to just say he was lying um, <laughs> about what you have. So you pretend to have powers that you may not in order to get an advantage in the game. Uh, and as you collect money, if you have an assassin, you can spend three coins to kill someone else's card unless mm -hmm. they have the assassin defense card. <laughs> or if you just gather seven coins, you can kill any card. Mm -hmm. So everyone's trying to amass coins as quickly as they can. And if you ever suspect that someone is lying about their car, one of their cards, you can call them on it. They have to reveal the card. If they are lying, then they lose that card. If you are wrong, then you have to discard one of your cards. Um, and the player who wasn't lying, actually, they'll still have to shuffle their card into the deck and take a new one. So it, it can weaken them. But it's a, it's a very funny game because, yeah, there's the people who like bluffing and then there's the people who don't. And uh, you're just trying to figure out and not get killed by an assassin. It, it's interesting introducing it to new people because they almost always play truthfully for a bit. And it makes sense because they don't know the game well enough to really kind of bluff their way through the other characters. But... You can, you can almost watch, there's that breaking moment after they've played, because typically this game comes out after a couple of drinks, and yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can see that moment when the, the something like snaps in their head, and as soon as they lie the first time, it's like the, the floodgates are open. Nothing yep. <laughs> they say can be trusted from there on in. So, Well, there's that funny phenomenon that I, either you or Joel mentioned, where there's the one card, the Duke, which allows you to take three coins, which is mm -hmm. the largest amount of cash you can get. And when you play with a lot of people, it's amazing how there are more dukes. <laughs> Everyone seems to have a duke at the beginning of a game. Everyone's the duke at the beginning, and nobody's feeling risk. Occasionally, I'll feel bold enough to just call out randomly. I'm so no, you're not the duke. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> just like catch one of them, but it's, it's honestly a waste of time. So, uh, but again, it's another very simple game as far as components go. It's a little box. You could, if you wanted to, you could proxy it yourself with just a deck of cards, and, and really without much trouble. But you know, for whatever meager price it goes for, something like uh, like fifteen dollars maybe at the store. It's really what, what's the what's the problem with just getting a legit copy of it? So, absolutely, and it plays in like four minutes around, oh, so super fast. Yeah. It, so if you're looking for something that's super strategic, I don't know if Coup's the game for you, but if you're looking for just chaos and accusing yeah. people of things <laughs> and. It's definitely something that's meant to be played fast and dirty. Then shouldn't be sitting there trying to math things out too hard. No, and it's a real kill the leader game as well. So it, mm -hmm. it's um, yeah, it doesn't reward any great strategy because you just pile on the leader. <laughs> exactly, except for the when the the grudges show up and it's like <laughs> <laughs> there's the grudges, which are in a lot of games. Whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's move on then to the. Uh, the main uh, feature. Can of, I interrupt though? What about course. the Jack update? Well, the, the Jack update, I'm going to tie into the, the, the main feature because right. it's, it'll be, we can tie it into the third. The, the, the feature of the show, depending on who you ask, will be either Paxapalooza or Paxstravaganza. <laughs> uh, and either way, you're going down a deep, dark 
hole that leads to madness and depravity, and there's no turning back. So abandon all hope, ye who picks up those cards and those little plastic pieces or whatever. Because we're entering the world of the PAX series. Uh, I don't know if you're capable of this, Michael, but do you, are you able to do a quick little overview of the PAX series? So do you know the origins or do you know anything about the, the design philosophy behind them? Uh, you know what? I should have done more research. I know only a little bit, and I've only had a small taste of the larger PAX world. Yeah. Uh, but I do know, uh, I think, I believe the first PAX game was PAX Porafiana, mm-hmm. which was made by Phil Eklund, his son Matt Eklund, and a third person whose name I don't didn't recognize when I saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, that inspired, I think, Cole Worley to make PAX Pamir. Mm-hmm. And then that inspired Phil Eklund and his son Matt to make PAX Renaissance. And then since then, it's blossomed into, I hope I don't miss one, PAX Emancipation, PAX Transhumanity, and now PAX Viking. Yeah, that's, there's, uh, I think that's all of them. I'm trying to think if there's any missing, but either way, it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a series. And what, what, what do you think the defining feature of these games are beyond the, the, the naming convention? Yeah, well, uh, they all involve cards, and mm-hmm. they all involve building tableaus of cards. They all have some sort of card market, because there's a little economy where you have some money and you have to buy cards out of a common market. Mm-hmm. Um, and the markets, I think, you know, I, I guess in the ones, I've played Renaissance, Pamir, and Viking. Mm-hmm. And you'll have to correct me on Pamir, but I think with the market, the cards always get more expensive. There's like a yep. range of price. Exactly. Uh, and then they tend to have multiple win conditions. I don't know if that's true of Pax Pamir. No, Pamir's, well, it's, there are two. It's just, uh, it, it depends on whether one triggers or not, then it defaults to the second. But uh, Pax Renaissance and Pax Viking, and I think some of the other ones have multiple win conditions, so players can decide which condition they're gunning for. Mm -hmm. Um, Which tends to, like with Renaissance, I saw it described as a sandbox game, because you tend to have a lot of choice in how you want to, what strategy or tactics you want to pursue. They involve a fair amount of (laughs) non-linearity or chaos. Yes. Where things are shifting frequently because everyone's tableau is changing. And one of the things I like about them, as much as I enjoy a tableau builder, there's a map board for all of them, at least the three. There's a map board often for them where the tableau impacts the map board and the map board impacts the tableau. And there's kind of an interflow between them, Mm -hmm. uh, which I find really enjoyable. I like that there's kind of a central spot where everyone's stuff gathers a mm-hmm. map of some sort uh i think i covered it yeah it, you the the thematically what's usually going on with these games uh some that are have passed and some that have uh, in the process of coming true. A lot of games 
games give you the someone who's di- dictating the 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 futures and fates of people. In most of these PAX games, at least from my understanding, that are uh, pulling strings, are manipulating things from behind the scenes, and often those big leaders are the ones you're you're influencing and. Um, making you know yeah. perform in a way that uh, rewards you the most. So, in something like uh, I guess historically something like Pax Viking, the theme doesn't quite come out as hard yeah. there. You're you're because everyone is still a jarl, which is I guess ostensibly a pretty large position, but you're you're still just a warlord at the end of the day. Um, and then you get to Pax uh, Pax Premier, uh, and you're now you're an Afghan warlord trying to pit the russians and the british and your fellow afghan nationals against each other to benefit yourself and move to porforiana where you're now a what is it a rich businessman a hacendado hacendado (laughs) that's and and or i miss the renaissance of course where you're just like you're one of the big merchants in the era Bankers. Uh, just bankers pulling the strings um so something in case you haven't noticed is that there's a very cynical element to these games uh that Please. Oh, I just, I mean, all of that, that is the exciting part of it. Um, I was very dry in talking about the mechanics, but yeah, it's the mm-hmm. flavor and the historical nature of it. And the cards in the market are all um, historical figures or historical groups that you bring into your tableau. And so in Pax Renaissance, you know, it might be the Lutherans or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and the idea is that your banker has somehow, you know, invested in, bankrolled, gotten the Lutherans to um, sort of come on side with the banker in some sort of shadowy cabal conspiracy. Mm-hmm. It's not quite conspiracy, it's the wrong way to look at it, but uh, the, so the cards are all fascinating. You know, there's, I don't know, a hundred of them or more in Pax Renaissance, and each one is something like Glinsky's Rebellion yeah. or Isfendiarid Dynasty. The Celebi Tax Revolts. I'm probably pronouncing these all wrong as well. No, no, that sounds exactly uh, right. Unified Christendom. And then there's a little bit of historical context about like Unified Christendom and how they tried to bring together Orthodox and Catholic Church. And uh, so the f- game is fascinating that way. And there's, you know, great flavor text and kind of getting a little sense of the period. And then the cynical element where you're a banker and you're yeah. tying together. Uh, you know, the Duke of Athens with the Black Sheep tribe and Vlad the Impaler in order to, uh, <laughs> to you know, bring glory to your bank. Well, and it's especially true in the, the sense of how these cards are acquired, like you're going in a market row and you're paying for them, simulating essentially, you know, the spreading of your wealth and the, the acquiring of these people or the or influencing the events with your cash in order to like bring things into your your thraldom or your domain. So it, it, it's if, if you like history, I think you can you can do a lot worse when it comes to games that aren't necessarily trying to because there's no recreation necessarily history. It's not like there's a set path you're going down and it's these events are f- like foretold and you're just making through the motions so you get there. If you wanted to, you could have uh, you know, um, uh, Islamic controlled Vatican in the the Renaissance and 
uh, England, uh, you know, I don't know, invading the, the I, I'm just trying to think of something crazy, like invading the, the, the Middle East, like in, like in owning it. I don't know, something like this. I'm just picking stuff out of the air. No, but, that's, uh, yeah, that's absolutely. And that's one of the things that makes it sandboxy. If hmm. we compare it a little bit to say, here I stand. Yes. Which is maybe a little bit later in time period, but in here I stand, each of the six factions has really specific rules about how they can play and what powers they have that historically mimic how they impacted the time period. Yeah. So if you're the king of England, you're marrying a lot of women and you're going to the New World. And if you're the Turks, you're attacking the Austro-Hungarians. Yeah. If you're the Protestants, you're trying to, you know, kill Catholic bishops. Yeah. Whereas in Pax Renaissance, it's like you said, yeah, it's, it's anything goes. You have kind of the starting elements yeah. of how it was and then you can uh, yeah, have your Islamic state yeah. in Italy or a reformation in the Ottoman. Yeah, exactly. So it's, there's this element to these, all these games where there's, there's this, this idea of uh, emergent, ga- emergent gameplay and emergent storytelling where I, really good games have a way of you play them and you don't need something holding your hand to tell a story or being really wacky you can end up with something organically bizarre that you look back on and you, and you, or even when you're playing, if it's, if I think you, and I'm not at the point yet in any of these games where you, but you're able to look at it from a broader sense because mechanically you're not thinking about it as much because it just makes perfect sense. It's intuitive, but you're staring at this and saying, Oh, why? Oh my God. Vlad the Impaler just overthrew King Henry. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> that's, that's nuts. That's fun. Uh, so it's just that that's the, one of the appeals of these games, I think, for in some sense that maybe, and even if I'm, like I'm saying, I'm not quite there yet to appreciate it, it's the, the sandbox, uh, you know, here are the toys, you can do what you want with it, but I think we'll get into maybe some of the, the, the deeper parts of that in a second. So before we do a deep dive into, uh, the, I'm going to say, we'll just face three games. Uh, we'll just stop for a quick music break. We'll be back in a second. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to CFRU 93.3 FM. What you just heard and not Michael was <laughs> Doro's Hand, Whose Eyes Regard the End, from the album Sign of Mung by the artist Vormithadreth. From, uh, the album just came out the other day, I think. Bit of dungeon synth. Michael and I had a brief conversation about this. Uh, this one is particularly grim, <laughs> in case the title didn't <laughs> indicate that. But it's, it's some fun stuff. Really good. Uh, I'm going to have to try to remember and Google all that. I'm, I'm a step I, behind you and still in the dark folk that we were discussing. I haven't graduated <laughs> to Dungeon Synth yet. It's funny because I, uh, I was driving home after taking the dog out for a walk this morning and uh, a Death in June song came on and I just had a little smile to myself. <laughs> but the, the tag for it was Apocalyptic Folk. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> geez, excuse me, tags from the... Yeah. <laughs> um, before we left, we were, gave a brief overview of the PAX series, at least the ones that we have a, a knowledge of, uh, some more than others. Uh, let's get into the meat and potatoes of these games. Uh, let's start with what we got to, uh, you know, what we all kind of played for the first time, because I, I had one play under my belt, but this was a real three-player game here, PAX Viking. Michael, do you want to set it up? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, PAX Viking is the newest of the PAX games. And like you said, it's a little bit different um, in that the general setup seems to be that you're kind of a figure behind the scenes, mm -hmm. um, affecting, manipulating things, whereas this one, you are a Viking warlord. Yeah. Um, but uh, as a fan of PAX games and a fan of Viking-themed games, I was all over the Kickstarter so much so that I didn't notice until it arrived in my house that Phil Eklund hadn't designed it. That uh, <laughs> this one is designed by John or Yan. Oh, I'm terrible at this. We should get Joel back. Uh, Jan Menker, who is the owner or co-owner of uh, Ion Games, which has merged with Phil Eklund's Sierra Madre Games to make yeah. Ion SMG games. Uh, which was an interesting story in itself, too. Well, yeah, there's yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there with uh, with poor Phil yeah. and and the culture wars and how he seems to deliberately put himself in precarious positions in it. Well, the I meant more about his uh, how he had to partner with Ion regarding right. Uh, well, there's yeah. that too because yeah, his businesses he kept just falling apart financially, wasn't he? Well, I think he actually got screwed by a, a publisher or a printer. And uh, I think he was just, he was totally out of cash and he had no choice to basically partner with another company. Because um, I'd have to dive into the story, but it was, there was a lot of schadenfreude from some people regarding it. And I just still right. felt bad for him because I didn't want to see any business just get, uh, for something so frustrating and tiny to have something you worked for get crushed. But uh, anyway, that's, this is a side story here. Well, no, but that's a, yeah, but it's, it's true. I mean, the man, he's worked very hard totally DIY creating his games that are very niche. Niche and, is a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. But like he does, he did the early graphic design himself and working everything out himself and doing all the business, yeah. um, which is kind of cool and admirable. And it's sad then that, yeah, that he got um, burned there at the end. But either way, Pax Viking, not a Phil Eklund game, but you, wouldn't, you could be forgiven for thinking that because you swing a stick and at a Pax game and it's going to be Eklund. So. It is true. And he is credited as a designer. And I, I just did a little Google on, it's John Manker. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and John has worked with Phil. John was a co-designer on BIOS Origins. Um, and I think High Frontier 4 as well. Yeah. yeah, so he's so he's also been very involved, not not just picking up Phil, but working with him. Mm-hmm. So Pax Viking is his stab at a Viking game, at a Pax game, and uh, it I've lost my thread. So it's a little bit different. You have the big map board, which is of Europe. And his idea was that he wanted to focus a bit more on the Vikings that went to the east rather than mm-hmm. the ones that went to the west. Because mm-hmm. um, the Vikings went down through Russia and ended up in the Black Sea and traded with um, the Constantinople. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite cards they came up was that there's a trade port that dealt in cats. <laughs> <laughs> the cat trade, that's right. And apparently the Vikings were involved in the cat trade from the Middle East. <laughs> uh, but so like other Pax games, there are different victory conditions, and he has them graded by level, and there's five of each level, and then you draw four. So every game has a slightly different set of victory conditions. And so every player is a Jarl, and you start with a Jarl board, which is where you build your tableau. And it's a much smaller tableau in this game. Your tableau is essentially kind of two chief advisors and a god that when you collect them, they give you special powers. And you have some ships and you have followers and the idea is that you're sending your ships out and you're moving them around the map. So there is a little bit of area control in this. Mm -hmm. And there are different areas in the maps where you can establish uh, trading bases. And so you're sending your boats out and you're creating trading bases and you're putting your followers out because uh, putting followers out gives you revenue and it can also be victory condition. And so the different players are moving their boats around the map, trying to found posts. But the trade posts are all dictated by what cards are in the market. So not every trading post is involved in every game. Uh, so you never quite know. Like all the PAX games, uh, you may not actually even be able to attain the victory conditions yeah. <laughs> that are available if the cards don't come into the deck because the PAX games tend to not use the full deck. Uh, it's just a selection from the deck, a random selection. So every game is a little bit different. And what's nice, different. just to jump in for a second, what's nice too is that the game goes from one to six. Um, I think it's one to six. I, I'm trying to remember it what is. the plot yeah. is. So the, the, you have... So all the, the cards that build the, the market, you have stuff in the game where they have especially curated amounts of cards for different player accounts, which is kind of nice to see so that you don't end up necessarily at the, the mercy of the wolves or the gods of randomness uh, if you're just starting out. Like, shuffle these 220 things, and here's hoping that you get a, some semblance of a, a deck that feels like it's going to be balanced in some way. So at least some thought, which I always appreciate, went into setups. Uh, if you're advanced, feel free to just grab whatever and just shuffle them in and go to town. But it, it was nice from uh, from my perspective to have something that looked like, uh, you know, it, it may not be the full experience, but it is an experience at least that's been guided or curated. Well, yeah, and that's a, that is a nice addition because Phil Eklund games tend to not worry so much about whether there's balance. <laughs> you have to kind of sort it out during the game and figure out if there's balance and if there isn't you have to hopefully get your other players to gang up on whoever's in the lead yeah exactly so th- those are the the kind of the broad overviews of the game there's 
It's it's more of a uh, it's kind of a worker placement game mixed with the pack stuff because you have these actions that are available to you and you can take the same actions four times if you wanted to. You can improve these actions if you come dominant in one specific track, which I don't think there's any point getting into it, but uh, there are four distinct sort of avenues of, of their life. And uh, it, it's so when you would get to replace it and do something special with that one action, should you choose. But broadly speaking, what were your thoughts about uh, Pax Viking as a connoisseur of the series, Michael? Uh, I greatly enjoyed it, though. One other thing that I touched on is because uh, so the card market has some cards that are gods, some that are advocates, some that are events, and some that are trade posts. And the trade posts get put on the map. The gods and the advocates you bring into your tableau and they give you game-affecting abilities to make your ship stronger or you get more income. or So every game also, again, that your tableau, what you put in your tableau changes your approach. So I... As a PAX game, I enjoyed it because I liked that it had all of those nonlinear or chaotic elements that you never quite know what's coming in the market. What you grab for your advocate or your god is different from game to game, or maybe you wanted one and the other player grabbed it. So I like how nothing is ever quite the same in the game. Mm -hmm. Everything is always shifting. Um, and I thought it had a nice Viking flavor, like the, the flavor text was all great. And it was fun. We were a three-player game. Joel and I were kind of on one side of the board. You were on the other. Yeah. But it was nice that there was room to move out. And then we all got into conflict at some point because there were very simple combat rules. Um, mm -hmm. We're just, if you have more ships than the other person, you win. Yeah. But uh, that was a really nice, simple way. But we started to kind of establish, you know, the directions we were each going in, what victory conditions we were going for. And then as we saw each other getting towards those victory conditions, we started attacking each other. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a nice free-for-all, but it didn't feel too much like, because Joel and I got into conflict early, which was probably beneficial for you, but it didn't feel like a three-player game where two people get in conflict and the one person who stays out wins. No, it, uh, which speaks either to the fact that you guys were doing so well or my incompetency, but it's either way, it was... Um, I... I I'm usually pretty happy to mind my own business from this side of the map, but right. it, it did get a little tense at the end. But you you were saying that you could have ended the game two rounds before, and an unfortunate sort of or misordering of actions resulted in that not happening. Do you want to describe that? Uh, sure. I, I got overly excited, and it was my first game, and I forgot the order of operations I needed to do it in to win. Uh, the way the game ends, one of the, way the, one of the ways the game ends is with these event cards that come in the market. And so if you buy an event card, for one, it triggers a thing that happens in the game. Like either ships have to return to port, or you might get some money, or there's a mm -hmm. few other things. Um, but also whenever an event card is played, it's then time to check win conditions. And so I had almost attained a win condition. And what I really needed to do was do one more action to do the last, uh, to get the last part of the win condition covered and then pick the event. But I got confused and picked the event first. Uh, and then after that, my, I couldn't then trigger the end of the game because I then had to do my action and then was beyond that ability. 
And I, I want to be very clear here that if Michael had asked to redo the turn or something, I think most of us would have said yes without hesitation. So I want to make sure I want to fend off any potential yeah. uh, accusations of rule lawyering or uh, you said go dude or tournament play that, it, that yeah. I might be levied at me. This is nothing to do with me. No, I felt like I think I'd done another action after that, so I was gonna have to reel back two actions, and it just seemed like. Also, I was having fun. So <laughs> there you go. It's, yeah. So it's uh, the the game itself. I think. Um, how long do you think it took for us to play from start to finish? I actually have no idea. Two hours. Probably, yeah, I think two hours feels about right. And yeah. it's it's something that I don't know because Michael was listening to uh, the a playthrough and the rules on the way in, and I had already had a play under my belt. Uh, so Joel was the only one who was totally fresh to this. I think Joel got off easy with regard to learning how to play this thing because um, other friend of the show, uh, John, played this and he hated it. And and I have a feeling he was just being cranky. Maybe he needed a nap or something. But it's he said it was they couldn't figure out the movement when I think we all agree the movement was one of the easiest things to figure out, generally speaking. But the I, one of my main complaints was when we first played this game, I found the, the rules deeply confusing and oddly obtuse for something that is so, like, really simple at the end of the day. It, it really wasn't bad. And I don't know, did you get a taste of that at all, Michael, or did, was that just uh, my own pains? No, I think, and to John's point, he was playing it at a gathering of a bunch of other, like, old-school war gamers so they yeah. were certainly experienced difficult rule readers uh but i don't know where they went wrong on the movement the pax games and phil eklund rules in general are notorious for being kind of written in almost the most difficult way to understand them <laughs> spaceman yeah and even though i've played many of them when i read them i still find them i don't i can't even explain why it is so hard yeah but I do find, so I listened to Heavy Cardboard's rules explanation. And then I, on the drive, I listened to another one. And I found that helped immensely. Then reading the rule book was way easier. I didn't try to do it from reading the rule book. And I, even with my PAX experience, I can see how that can lead to confusion. Yeah. And there is online chatter about how the original PAX Viking rule book was unclear and problematic. <laughs> um, including one person saying that the solo rule they found the solo rules to be unplayable oh my god <laughs> um but with all of the phil eckland games there's online there's living rules and he's constantly yeah. updating them and people are constantly commenting so i mean it's one of those disappointing i don't know iterative they do it with software now as well i guess yeah. where you know things get put out with bugs yeah you just iteratively fix it it, you'd think that board games would be more sensitive to this because it's one of those things like you really only get one shot at this. So yeah. like, let's make it work. But no, it's. But to be fair, it's once you get past it all, and like you can go online now, and like you're saying, look up living rules or find clarifications. But it's just, I, I just feel sorry for people because I think at the core of this game is an extremely accessible, if dry, um, experience that can really get people maybe dipping their toes into this this subgenre, this this world that. Uh, and who knows where it might take them. But unfortunately, I, I, I worry that somebody might pick up this game like, oh, Vikings are cool, man. I, I played yeah. Blood Rage. That was great. And you play this, and it's like... yeah. And, and that's assuming you can even get through the rule book. And so that's just my thought. 
No, absolutely. It's a very different feel than Blood Rage. <laughs> um, and even uh, I played. I don't know if you've ever played Fire and Axe. No, uh, I, I've I've heard of it. I don't know anything about it though. Which I find this a little more similar to. I kind of liked Fire and Axe, but the the scoring in Fire and Axe was a very painful experience. A lot of jotting down notes and tallying things. Oh my god! Um, but the game, <laughs> like this, kind of emphasized the exploratory nature of the Vikings rather than the blood rage of yeah. them just killing each other all of the time. Well, that's it. So the I think the last thing I want to say, and Michael can weigh in on this, is that the one of the aspects that comes through with the, the pack series here is that even though there is conflict, and depending on what's going on, and I think the player count is definitely going to affect this, but there is a lot of... Um, it's mostly about just establishing posts, which in this game are like putting new locations on the map via cards in your hand and uh, in order to put your followers down. And it's mostly about uh, just kind of peacefully doing your business and trading and negotiating and building up friendships with people, depending on the uh, the victory conditions that are up there. It's it's not one of these. It's not commit viking edition you're not in there to just murder everything that you see um and i think playing the game that way i it might be possible but it seems like you'd make everyone really angry and yeah. you'd end up getting like just ganged up on ruthlessly so it's it's you have it's i think with a lot of these packs games your your violence has to be a scalpel you can't be coming in with a, a battle axe which is kind of ironic considering the theme there but uh, um do you agree with that? I, uh... I absolutely agree. And it, one of the things, when you establish a post, each post has its own sort of magical ability where using an action, you can activate it to either bring you more money or give you an extra move. Mm -hmm. um, so the posts themselves enhance your abilities. So I think what happens in the game is, I would imagine, we've only played one, you've played yeah, two, yeah. but you establish your initial posts and then... And then the violence kind of starts then, where you're trying to poach <laughs> each other's posts, either yeah. to slow them down. But it's a you have to weigh the options. You only have four actions. And like any good game, and all of the PAX games, I find this, but it's good in any game where you're just one action short or you're yeah. one coin short of what you need to do. Yeah, yeah. Like that frustration is, is the hallmark for me of a great board game. So in this game, you have to decide, like, am I going to expand myself or am I going to try to take down jack yeah because if I, I can take pull jack away from winning the game but then i'm not moving myself forward necessarily and if i do that then am i allowing joel to move ahead yeah and so it's filled with great juicy decisions like that and that uh, yeah decisions that's the key word you want something that you're thinking about if if you ever just brain dead choices constantly like there's nothing wrong with having obvious things to do but just if you have to agonize over something that makes you feel good too it's uh, yeah it's a brain flowing and the conflict is it's scalpel oriented. Like you have to do it really strategically and you can't get angry and then just attack someone back. Exactly. Because then you've sunk both of your games. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know if it could have that issue with just the cyclical attacking the leader or like, and just turns into this tornado where, okay, you attack that person, stop them from winning. Now somebody else has attacked that person, stopped them from winning, and it just turns into this sort of like, whose job is it? <laughs> like, yeah. who, but so far in our two plays, it has not come up. So <laughs> I'll, I'll worry about it later. I can see that, and I've definitely experienced that in Pax Renaissance. 
Yeah. Um, have you found that impacts Pamir? It's, um, I'm going to say no, because Pax Premier does something a little more interesting with regard to like piling on. So you, unless it's like very last round, or it's clear that if this person gets it, the game's over. But for the first two rounds, are like or X dominance checks before the game's going to end, you can just kind of like kind of sidle up and be like, yeah, that's fine. I'll just get some points too. I'll take some. Because uh, yeah. you can cruise to victory as well, but it's at the end, then it could turn to that. But I don't know any board game that couldn't, that might not. Like if people no. are just staring at everyone's board saying, if you let Michael get that last sheep card, he wins yeah. the game. So that's right. Don't trade with Michael. Don't trade with Michael. So, um, all right. So, Pax Viking, I'm, I'll give an endorsement, easy endorsement. It's just make sure you figure out the rules and don't just pull this out at a casual gaming night with your, your best buds. Because they will never come back and play board game with you again. I'm telling you right now. No, it's definitely you need a medium weight crowd. Yeah. And you need a crowd who don't just want to attack Ancient. each other. Yeah. But it is, I think, I've seen some debate back and forth, but it does seem like the easiest entry into the PAX system. Yeah. Where it kind of covers the basic bases. So you get the, the overall mechanics. Yeah. So it is a good entry level PAX, I would say. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, we don't have ton of time left, so let's just do a quick. Uh, I, let me give you. I want to hear your thoughts about Pax Renaissance Second Second Edition. Um, I think what do we got? We got about. Uh, well, just get talking. I'll cut you off. All right, perfect. Let's yeah, Pax Renaissance. I I find it a maddening game, and I love it all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, one throwback I want to do to the cynicism we talked about of the bankers pulling all the strings in Europe. Um, Phil Eklund actually sees that as a positive where he saw <laughs> the bankers and the new finance models and accounting models and money as the drivers of the Enlightenment, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. So he doesn't see it as a, as a weird manipulative conspiracy so much as uh, capitalism and free markets coming through and improving the world. Right uh, there is the philosophy that's so that kind of sets the table for Pax Renaissance quite nicely. So yeah, so you play, as we said, you play a banker and you build your tableau and you're, as part of your tableau, you're taking over the rulers of ten, one of 10 different empires who you can then use to attack other empires. Um, so there's a lot going on on the board. The pirates are going down, empires are attacking each other. Uh, there's religious wars, there's conspiracies, there's peasant revolts. Uh, and at the same time, there's another sub-game that we didn't really get into where you have bishops, which are these pieces that move around the yeah, we uh, didn't people's tableaus. Yeah. And they stop cards from having actions. Um, I, I find the design really fun. That The game is designed where the pieces look like chess pieces. So there's rooks mm -hmm. and knights and pawns and bishops. Uh, I feel like the second edition is... A, is builds nicely on the first edition. It's close to the same game, but the rules are much better laid out with good, clear examples. Mm. Uh, the board is nicer. Uh, the one trick with Pax Renaissance is there, it, once you get it, you get it, but there's a lot of different possible actions and all of the cards have different, almost random actions that you can, of the selection of like 10 actions, they come out differently on all of the cards. So it's a bit of a visual hot mess. And 
you're looking at your tableau and trying to see what you can do, and you're looking at the other people's tableaus and trying to yeah. see what they're trying to do. And elements of the tableaus are win conditions, so it can be hard always to track what they have on them. Uh, but why I love the game is because it is it does feel very sandboxy in that. And it's funny, the second edition rulebook has a player's guide that's like, what should I be doing? What should I do first? Because it's not <laughs> immediately clear what that's your first game. actions <laughs> should be in the game. Yeah. Because um, you have to build a little bit of an engine. Uh, but as we discussed, not necessarily all the cards that you would need to complete a win condition may not actually be in play in that given game. Mm -hmm. So when you start the game, you're kind of just building some sort of engine out of what's available. And there's kind of a point where you have to commit to a winning strategy, to a, a win condition and start moving towards it, even though you don't know if it's going to pay for you or pay off in the end, which I guess is uh, to like Lost Cities in a way. Yeah, look at that. Tying it look right around. Yeah. So I find the game a bit maddening because there are so many possibilities of peasant revolts and conspiracies and jihads and bishops killing each other. Um, but there isn't always enough gameplay to make them happen. If you know what I mean, like they absolutely, you, you may not get the ability to do them. Uh, so I find that a bit maddening. Uh, and also, sometimes you can go for a win condition, and the cards just may not come your way. Yeah. And so it was kind of decided by fate before you even started playing that you were not going to win that game. Uh, so I find that, depending on how you approach the game, that can be really maddening, or it can be it can be kind of fun that you know you gambled a certain direction and it didn't pay off but i find the overall story of the game of you know the there was a jihad in the papal states yeah yeah or you know england took over france uh there's such a sweep to the story and the the weird characters that you end up with in your tableau how you can have elizabeth bathory married to the holy roman empire emperor yes. <laughs> <laughs> And then her special ability that she can start a surf revolt. Yeah. Uh, um, I find all of that just so amazing. So the stories that come out of it and kind of the excitement of the way the board shifts is so much fun. And it's just so weird and nutty that... Uh, and I, I would say this with a lot of Phil Eklund games, the game itself is a bit clunky maybe, but the experience is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, not to undersell it, because it is, I think, a fun game, but he doesn't... Pamir is a really much more tightly designed game, I think. It, it, it's, there, it's almost like night and day between the way Pamir plays and Renaissance, because Renaissance is... I think I, an example I used in our emails or something was that like, it's like being handed a toolbox with a bunch of alien tools that ha can be detached and reattached in, in any number of combinations and told to like go build this game there build your win and yeah. it's like okay and watching somebody who knows how to do it i'm sure is fantastic to see them kind of like it's like watching a, an artist do their thing um versus Pamir, which is that it's it, your tools are much more limited it's not a sandbox but it's 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 immediate your your ability or your decisions are through the roof 
and your the ability for other people to screw with those decisions is has never been higher. So it's this it's this wonderful mess of people trying to smash the plates you're spinning uh, while you're trying to smash theirs, or maybe you're both <laughs> trying to get into the similar dance together. Versus, I just don't get it with Renaissance because the first time I played, which was this when you were over. It, it just, I spent the entire game just trying to figure out what, how the game was played rather than actually any sort of strategy per se. And you're, you were doing your best and you're being so patient with like, well, you should change the trade over here because then you'll get more money. And yep. uh, if you, if you buy this, that means you can like, it'll push you towards this imperial victory and things. It's just like, oh my God, this is, this is hilariously complicated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't want to undersell it though. I guess I've got 10 or 11 plays of it. It's tons. Oh, my God. And, but I also do like how my knowledge of it builds every time I play. Yeah. Um, so I find the game rewarding that way as well, that you don't just play it a few times. I mean, Pamir is an excellent game because it is this real strong push-pull between all of the players mm-hmm. constantly. So there's a much tighter rule set, but the interaction between everyone creates a lot of shifting grounds and chaos which mm-hmm. is a lot of fun pax renaissance you're playing the game against the game a little bit more but you're mm-hmm. also playing against the other players where once you have kind of your engine going once you know what's going on you then look up and see where everyone else is and what victory <laughs> conditions they're going for and you try to thwart them <laughs> or or you just thwart them out of the gate because it's fun like it, you know yeah whatever works yeah yeah all right, well, let's leave it there then. Uh, I feel like we could say a lot more and uh, we can dip, dip into Pamir another time, but uh, er, er, in greater detail, and same with Renaissance. But uh, we'll, we'll leave it there and, I'll, and uh, I'll, I'll give a hesitant endorsement to Pax Renaissance. I, I don't feel comfortable endorsing it. It's like handing uh, a, a loaded ray gun to a, uh, someone else. That <laughs> I don't know how it works, so don't play with it yet. But after I get this thing sighted and loaded, then I'll be more than happy to talk about it. But I look forward to future plays of the game because as it stands, it's just like this, it's just, it scares me, Michael. I look at that game and I get, <laughs> and I get nervous thinking about it. So. Well, I find it's like a lot of the Felicton games like Bios Origins or Megafauna, which we talked about when I was on a year ago. Yeah, a while, like, yeah. A while, but the, the games, the rules are a little bit shaggy dog-ish because the, the game creates an experience. Yep. Um, and the experience can be a lot of fun. And even when you're at the bottom of the experience, you know, if you miss your wing condition in Pax Renaissance or in Bios Origins, if someone is enslaving all of your meeples, um, <laughs> there's still kind of a scope and to the game that yeah. makes it kind of fun and funny to relive afterwards. All right, good. Let's stop there. Thank you for listening. Android's Dungeon, CFRU 93FM. You can check us out on the Twitter at 80 radio CFRU shoot us an email at droid at gmail.com or check us on Instagram at uh, just androids dungeon. And uh, of course, check us on CFRU.ca or all your favorite podcasting websites. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us this week. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, I'm... Joel, for being away. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's, he's currently uh, probably being devoured by a bear at long points. So that's what I think is going to happen. So thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe and have a good summer. And I'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.